Hello and welcome to the 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews. On this episode, Mason investigates Holmes, Sherlock, and Mycroft. Mike gets us buzzing with his look at Viva Java, the coffee game, the dice game. Ruth explores prosperity in 14th century France with Notre Dame. And I'll be back to cross swords and cross, well, crosses with Sola Fide. But first, Lindsay takes a deep and dark dive into American history with Affliction, Salem, 1692. Hi everyone, it's Lindsay here. In this episode, I'm going to talk about Affliction, Salem, 1692, designed by Dan Hundike, published by DPH Games, with artwork by Lisanne Lake. It plays 2-4 with a duration of 30-60 minutes. I first noticed this game last summer, I think it was on the Board Game Geek Gen Con list, and it's one that could have very easily slipped under the radar for me, and I'm very grateful that it didn't. This is an interesting and unique game, categorised as a worker placement game, but I'll come on to that shortly, and it simulates the Salem Witch Trial Hysteria. In Affliction, we have a central board and two rows of colonist cards. Order of actions are predetermined on the central board, and each player will take a turn to place the Witchfinder Meeple. Two actions in a 2-4 player game, three in a 2 player game. Once selections have been made, actions are carried out in the order of the actions space track. Further actions can be generated through use of cards you recruit throughout. There are four prominent families and depending on your player board you'll get bonus points for recruiting the family you're allied with and arresting the family you're enemies with, meaning you have two other families you have no particular allegiance to. As you're playing opposing sides of different goals, you have direct conflict over who is arrested and recruited. Each colonist has a value that you pay to arrest or recruit. You can arrest a colonist in another player's circle but once they've been recruited, their cost increases. You can't arrest a colonist without accusing them first, and accusation tokens lower their costs to arrest. You pay influence tokens that you accumulate through actions on the board or through certain colonists in your circle, and you can also place fear, spectral evidence, or protection on colonist cards. Whilst it's not a light game, it's not overly complex or heavy, and has a decent duration. It gives you a lot to consider and keeps you consistently occupied. It's a little bit of a running jest between Mason and I about my witchy woman tendencies, but what I've been into is modern white magic but I do have a penchant for witch themes and the spooky. However, the witch trials, not only in Salem but around the world, have become synonymous with the persecution of innocent people that were seen as a threat and the mass hysteria and moral outrage created in its wake. This was an absolutely terrifying era, and the Salem witch trials are most famous due to a bizarre series of events that unfolded. But to my knowledge, there are no other board games that tackle this particular topic, so I jumped at a chance to buy Affliction, and I was curious as to whether a game of this thing could work, because it is a serious, grisly topic, and it takes us back to a very dark era. So could a game of this theme ever be fun, and would we want it to be? But I can safely say that Affliction gets it right, and I'll touch on this again later, but there's actually no depth or detail about the trials themselves. But it doesn't make it hollow or thoughtless by not doing so. Also, I don't find it to be a worker placement game rather than action selection, where you don't recruit or pay for workers or number of workers affects your productivity, but you can take action spaces to maximise what you can achieve on your turn, and this makes for interesting difficult decision making. Building up your circle and using characters for their abilities at the right time and protecting your cards is at the heart of the game, the player interaction makes it entertaining, frustrating and fun. The characters' thematic abilities will make sense if you're familiar with the witch trials or have watched the TV show Salem or have seen the Crucible, and I really enjoyed the element of the game because of my interest in the subject. There are elements of bluffing and affliction, and a sense of desperation to get home you need before the game approaches its ends. But card management is strong, and increasing influential characters in your circle will really help in not wasting action spaces trying to generate influence here and there. Some of the characters' abilities can be activated by another card in play, even if it's in other players, so you have to have your wits about you. We played a couple of games before choosing to use the grievance cards, which just adds another challenge, as these are objectives to recruit or arrest certain characters, or lose points if one of those characters is arrested or not. I really enjoyed the way the game builds. 
after a quick and easy setup, you can get stuck in and play and stop doing things. But as your circle grows and you start accusing arresting and using abilities, maximizing your actions, then it really comes into its own and becomes highly competitive. I think Affliction got this right because whilst the character's ability is thematic and the game is thematic, it's not disrespectful and neither is it gritty. And that's not to say another game couldn't achieve those things if it was designed well or that Affliction dumbs it down nearly well and makes light of it. It simply focuses on the townsfolk and serves as a reminder of how politics, religion and fear can make people go do lally. And whilst I'm accusing and arresting and so forth, I can't help but to feel that sense. So for me, it truly works as a simulation game. I really loved Affliction for the pared down artwork and appearance. The front cover is bleak and the of the time and the characters and bolder in traditional early period it's not fancy or pretty and it's kind of creepy i have really grown in appreciation for games that are unapologetically keeping it simple in terms of art and style and focusing on the gameplay without pretty distractions as much as i enjoy fancy components and pretty things because it's these kind of games that i start off playing and i have real fondness for affliction is available online and from the dph games online store so go and take a look if this sounds like your type of thing it was definitely mine if you want to see and hear more from me you can visit my Instagram, Facebook page or YouTube channel, Shiny Have Meeples, or visit my website, www.shinyhavemeeplesco.com or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, capital M, Meeples Co. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Holmes, Sherlock and Mycroft. There's been a bit of an explosion of Sherlock Holmes games in the last several years, which makes sense as Arthur Conan Doyle stories are both well-known all over the world and, more importantly, copyright-free. For much the same reason that H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos is a popular theme, there is something that lots of people know and like and are already familiar with that publishers don't have to pay any money to the rights for. And it certainly didn't hurt the Sherlock explosion. The last 10 years brought us both Robert Downey Jr. films and the Benedict Cumberbatch TV series, both wildly popular and successful. I've been a big Holmes fan since childhood, sparked by the ridiculous and retrospectively somewhat mediocre Great Mouse Detective animated film from 1986. I went a little Sherlock crazy after that and made my dad read me a bunch of the original stories, and then I reread the entire canon about 10 years ago. We played through a little bit of Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective and have been very, very bad at it. But until we tried Holmes, Sherlock, and Mycroft, I wasn't sure that there was a Sherlock game out there for me. Unsurprisingly, many Holmes-themed games are about deduction, hidden information, or solving mysteries, mostly not really things I'm interested in. The idea of a worker placement Sherlock Holmes game occurred to me almost immediately after I played Agricola for the first time when we first started playing hobby games, but like all my other big ideas, I of course didn't follow through on it. Holmes, Sherlock, and Mycroft is a two-player-only, worker placement set-collecting game from Spanish designer Diego Ibanez and published by Devere in 2015. Illustrator Pedro Soto is becoming one of my favorite new board game artists. He also did last year's Devere game, Michael Strogoff. Holmes is a set-collection, and really set-majorities game, where all the actions you take get you clue cards which go face up on the table in front of you. You don't have a hand of cards, but there is a card market and a deck of numbered clue cards. The deck distribution is sort of the opposite of Bonanza or some of the Kinesia games. There are more high-value cards than low-value cards, because points are rewarded by the number of the cards in the suit you have minus the number your opponent has. The worker placement in Sherlock and Mycroft has an interesting workaround for blocking actions. Each of the worker spaces is a card, and at the end of the turn, if both players have used that action space, the card gets flipped over and isn't available during the next round. The game also prevents you from using the same action twice in a row because you don't take all of your workers back. Each round, all your workers start from the place you left them in the previous round. This kind of action selection is one of my favorite things about Sherlock and Mycroft, and I think maybe unique among worker placement games. I love the set collection here as well. If you can manage to get all of one of the clue types, you get three bonus points, so you can come at it from the angle of, well, I'm going to try to get all three number threes and all four number fours, 
knowing full well that you run the risk of your opponent getting enough high-value cards to win. There's a certain amount of risk-reward in pursuing only one or two suits as opposed to trying to get a little bit of everything. You'll probably never win by only getting a little bit of everything, but if you completely ignore suits, you can accidentally end up getting crushed. I know, because I've done it. I'll spare you the details of what the individual actions do, but it's mostly just get magnifying glass tokens, trade magnifying glass tokens for cards, switch cards around, draw blind cards off the deck, and that sort of thing. Each of these action spaces is a different classic character from the home stories. In some ways, I suppose that some of the actions are slightly thematic, but if you're really looking for a deep dive into the streets of Edwardian London, this game probably is not what you are looking for. While it has a great theme, and it does adhere to it conceptually, this is definitely not what I would call a thematic game. You could reasonably reskin Holmes, Sherlock, and Mycroft to any number of other settings or worlds, and it would still be one of the best two-player worker placement games around. The box and components are all excellent. This comes in my favorite box size, the classic Cosmos two-player box, aka the patchwork box. The box is very shallow, as it's just a few little meeples, some tokens, a deck of cards, and the board. But Diego Ibanez has really packed a lot of game into minimal components here. Included in the deck are expansion event cards to make the game extra hard if you so choose, as well as some asymmetrical player powers so one of you can be Sherlock and the other be his brother Mycroft, hence the title. Weirdly, the German Cosmos version of this game is called Holmes Sherlock vs. Moriarty, but I couldn't really find a reason why. The whole point of the game is that one of you is Holmes and the other is Mycroft, both trying to foil a bombing plot in Parliament, and so I'm curious if they've changed the basic story as well. If that's the kind of thing you know the answer to, do give me a shout because I'd be interested in hearing it. So, who should buy Holmes, Sherlock, and Mycroft? Anyone who plays a lot of two-player games. Anyone who likes quick, tactical worker placement. Anyone who's interested in a fresh take on set collection. And anyone who just loves Sherlock Holmes. I would even recommend it as a gift for adult non-gamers who are Holmes fans, as it's not particularly complex and the rulebook is very short. I give Holmes, Sherlock, and Mycroft 6 out of 6 shillings to be divvied up between the Baker Street regulars, though Wiggins gets an extra share, obviously. I'm Mason Weaver, you can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. Roland rights are hot, but sadly a trend that I have not explored much. Having played several X the Dice games, I'm usually left wishing I had played the non-dice version. But one that I have been enamored with for a few years is Viva Java the Coffee Game, the Dice Game, the I Have Too Many Names game, despite what I would normally consider a fatal flaw in the game's name. Viva Java Dice should be considered one of the elder statesmen of the roll and write genre, having been published back in 2014. I guess maybe TC Petty, Chris Kirkman, and Dice Hate Me games jumped on that wave just a little too early. In Viva Java Dice, we are working together for the same company, but competing to make the best blends to put Viva Java Coffee Company on top. You roll five dice and then try to make your best blends. This is kind of Yahtzee style where you want of-a-kind rolls, but not Yahtzee style in that you get zero re-rolls at the start. The more of-a-kind, the better. Once you finish rolling, you check to see what you can do with your dice. There are two blends that you are trying to make. The rainbow blend is where you roll all different bean types. If you roll a rainbow blend, you receive one point and take the rainbow blend coaster from the person who currently has it. If you roll multiple of a kind of any roast color, then you may be able to take the feature blend for one point. If your blend is better than the blend currently on the coaster by either rolling a better of kind roll or the same number of a kind as is currently there, only in higher quality beans. If you have one of the two coasters when it is your turn again, then you score even more points. If you control the feature blend, then instead of rolling the dice again, you remove a die from the coaster to weaken your blend. It is at this point you must decide if you wish to press your luck and hope that the blend lasts another round, in which case you skip your turn, or you can break up the blend by using the remaining dice for your roll. 
Thematically, this is because people are getting tired of the same blend, but for in-game purposes, this is helpful as someone can't lock up that cursor with an insanely lucky roll and helps eliminate a runaway leader. In the games I've played, the cursors have been swapped fairly regularly. If you can't take a cursor with your rolls, you can also do research. This is where you get special abilities such as manipulating your die, rolling additional die, or getting the reroll ability. There are two standard setups you can use, but also an option for randomly setting up which abilities you can earn. For each die of a specific color, you can move up that many spots on a research path. Once you've reached a certain threshold, you may use that ability once per turn, then twice a turn further up. But be careful, because if you complete a path and you have finished your research, you can no longer use that ability, though you do get victory points. In the randomized setup, there are even options that'll hurt you, so you'll want to avoid those research options if possible. The only die face that doesn't have a research path is the black side. If you use the black side for research, you get a flavor bean. Flavor beans are extra die that you use on your next turn and then lose. They are identical to the regular dice, except instead of the black side, which is the highest, you get a wild side. Another way that Viva Java Dice was ahead of its time for 2014 is that it includes a solo mode. There are solo specific research options, and you face one of two evil corporations. <coughs> Starbucks. <coughs> The corporations work a little differently from each other, but are fairly simple to roll and score for, and provide for an interesting challenge. The evil corporations have no interest in research to make better coffee, just in making lots of coffee. One corporation uses lots of rerolls, while the other uses lots of flavor dice to make their blends. I appreciate the simple system where the number of rerolls or flavor dice adjusts as the company does better or worse, making the game easier or harder depending upon how well the corporation is doing. I enjoy playing solo quite a bit. Another big draw for me has to be the art. I really like that art deco style of the components, though when push comes to shove, I like the cover of the German edition better. So while the game was temporarily out of print, I picked up a copy of the German edition, but unfortunately for a dice game, Viva Java is not language independent. Once you get all the symbols down, maybe you can get an international edition, but all the symbols aren't in the English rules, so I was lucky that Derek Davis agreed to send me an English copy. So that's Viva Java, the coffee game, the dice game. I like that this game is quick with easy setup, but that the research tracks give you something to consider and sends players down different paths. The luck can be hard, but you can always get a little something for each roll. Now that it's back in print, if you're a Roll and Write fan, I would recommend giving it a try. Until next time, you're welcome to reach me on Twitter, at Mike Grizzly, if you want to hear all about how much I miss drinking coffee, that is. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, once again talking about a game designed by Stefan Feld. It's no secret to those who know me that I really like this particular designer's games, and I have quite a lot of them in my collection. One that I have a particular fondness for is Notre Dame, a Feldian classic that, like in the Year of the Dragon discussed in episode 10, was recently re-released by Aaliyah in an anniversary edition. Notre Dame stands out amongst my collection for a few reasons. It's a lighter Feld that offers satisfying gameplay in under an hour and a half. It can play up to five, which can be very useful at game night, and most interestingly to me, it's a Feld game that features drafting despite being published in 2007, a year before Dominion hit the shelves and came to define that particular mechanism. Notre Dame limits your choices each round to taking two of three actions represented by cards in your hand. Being forced to draft these cards allows for a higher degree of player interaction than many euros of this weight, and makes playing the game not just about building your own prestige, but also about denying your opponents the chance to improve theirs. 
Set in Paris at the end of the 14th century, Notre Dame has players take on the role of influential families, so influential, in fact, that they control a neighborhood in the shadow of the famous cathedral. Over the course of three periods, each split into three rounds, players will use their cards to add influence cubes into different sectors of their borough and take an associated action. The strength of each action is determined by the amount of influence in the sector, and so actions will get more powerful with each use. That is, provided you haven't run out of influence and had to start moving cubes around instead of just adding more. Players build their prestige through various means, including driving around town in fancy carriages, building up wealth, contributing to the cathedral, and calling in favors from notable personages. But they also have to take care of one darker issue. As I mentioned, the game is set at the end of the 14th century, and that means plague. At the end of each round, rats will enter the city, and if a player doesn't take enough time away from increasing their own reputation, then disease will strike their area of Paris, causing them to lose reputation and prestige. After all, if your borough is plague-ridden, it doesn't really help you impress people. Luckily, players will know how many rats are going to appear at the beginning of each round, giving them time to respond, and improving their hospitals will make the impact of the rats less terrible. But it all depends on whether they have the right cards to make things better in time, and if they're willing to adjust their plans on the fly to take care of the growing threat. Notre Dame is a relatively simple game to learn and start playing, but balancing the dual economies of your influence cubes and money makes for interesting gameplay. Cubes are necessary for taking actions, especially if you want them to be as efficient as possible. And with just two actions per round, you're going to want your actions to be as effective as possible. But you can't ignore money for cubes. You need it to contribute to Notre Dame, which pays out in prestige. And more importantly, it's how you're going to get to call in some pretty powerful favors at the end of each round. Just before the rats arrive, players always have the opportunity to hire one of three people at the cost of a single coin. This doesn't sound all that expensive, but money tends to be extremely tight, and so sometimes you end up taking a so-called desperation action to get just a single coin purely so you can hire that one guy you really need at the end of the round. The person cards come in two varieties, and the bulk are brown cards, each of which is seen three times during the game. But there are also grey cards which only come out in their assigned period, and thus are only seen once. These cards offer some great opportunities to earn prestige, but since you can only hire one person per round, sometimes you're left weighing up going for points versus getting what you need for the next round. And those are the kinds of tricky decisions I love. This is not the flashiest looking of games. In fact, it's very beige, although the clever modular board does sometimes grab attention. Each borough board can be rotated in different ways depending on player count, meaning that you don't end up with unused areas of the board and an unfair advantage for one player or another when it comes to carriage movement. The components in Notre Dame? Well, they're typical Aaliyah components. Everything is thin and a little flimsy, and every time I play I start trying to figure out replacements for the coins and for the prestige tokens. But it's serviceable, and the gameplay is so much better than the bits, which is definitely preferable to the reverse of that statement. The 2017 10th Anniversary Edition didn't make any component improvements, but it did include two expansions in the box, each offering more variety in the person cards to shake things up without altering gameplay. The Anniversary Edition also also includes a small expansion for another great Feld game, The Castles of Burgundy, which may be of interest to you. Notre Dame isn't going to wow you with amazing art or fancy bits, but if you do sit down to play, what you're going to find is a super solid, lightweight euro that provides some tricky decisions due to the constant threat of plague and the need to draft your actions. Resources are super tight and take precious time to build up, so you're going to have to figure out which inefficient actions you can get by with in order to get to a better position. You can't do everything, but you also can't ignore either prestige or plague, which makes for a satisfyingly stressful experience as you try to have at all. 
You can find the anniversary reprint for about $25 to $30, so if you are interested in trying Notre Dame but can't find someone's copy to play, then hopefully checking it out is not going to break the bank. It's a game that I'm going to be playing for some time, and I'll happily share with anyone who asks me to teach. So until next time, I'm off to search eBay for some old French coins, but you can find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter as Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. With all the themes board games explore, a game with a root in historical fact is something that will always pique my interest. And for someone who identifies as strongly secular, I have a deep fascination with religious history. You want to know about a pope? I will tell you about a pope. So when I heard about Sola Fide back in 2016, I knew it was a game I wanted to play. Sola Fide explores the years leading up to and during the Protestant Reformation. Unfortunately, far too often, historically themed games feel like the subject matter is just a convenient way to skin a game. Thankfully, in Sola Fide, the way history is used feels like the game was tailor-made for it while maintaining approachability both in gameplay and in tone. Released in 2016 by Stronghold Games, Sola Fide is a two-player deck builder and area control game in its most basic description. One player takes the side of the Protestant reformers, and the other heads up the Catholic Church. The players will be battling to earn the loyalty of the German nobles and commoners alike. A series of ten tiles are set up, representing ten German provinces. Each player also gets a deck of 45 cards unique to the Catholic or Protestant faction, whichever they've chosen to play. From this deck, players will draft the 15 cards they will use for the entirety of this game. Players draft their cards by drawing three, picking one, and discarding the other two, then drawing three more and repeating the process until their deck of 15 is done. On a player's turn, they have two choices. The player can choose to draw a card from their deck, or they can choose to play a card from their hand, which will allow them to take some sort of action like shifting power to either the noble or commoner side, convert a population to their side of the religious battle, or assist in some sort of hand management. Most cards are used and discarded until the draw deck runs out, but some have perpetual powers that last throughout the whole game. The name of the game is Claiming Provinces by influencing the right part of the population at the right time before your opponent can do the same. If at any point a player has all of the influence spaces in their color on the side that is in power, then they can claim the territory and the number of points that that territory allows. The game ends once the last province tile is claimed, and the player with the most points wins. But what makes this good game a great game is the marriage of gameplay and historical theme. Each card in the deck is rooted in that source material. And like many deck builders, this game comes with a compendium explaining each card as a guide. But instead of explaining the power or action granted when a card is played, the booklet explains the historical reasoning behind the card's title and the connection to the card's action. Dare I say there's some educational aspect? Sure. The second time I played through this, it took us twice as long, because we took turns playing the card, reading the historical explanation in the guide, and then taking our action. So yeah, the thematic implementation is on point in this game. But after all, it is a game. The gameplay has to be good. And it is. Very. From the way you draft your deck to the constant tug of war of the gameplay, 
This is a two-player game that I know I'll keep coming back to, especially when I'm looking for something a bit meatier than the shelves of light two-player fare currently adorning my game room. This game is tense. You can never rest on your laurels. Nothing is a sure thing, and just when you think you have it in the bag, your opponent plays the perfect card and you have to adapt. Simply, it's tactical. Each turn triggers strong consideration and decision-making. But even from my first playthrough, I never felt lost or like I didn't have control of my cards and could find my own way to play to my gaming strengths. Look, I'm not one to normally gravitate towards a deck builder, but having a small deck of cards and a drafting mechanic that eliminates a lot of AP definitely dials down the intimidation factor for me. It's much easier to choose one thing out of three choices than it is to look at a huge selection of cards and feel like you're setting yourself up for disaster. And by you, I mean me. It's totally me. An average game of Sola Fide lasts about 45 minutes to an hour. Turns happen quickly, but towards the end, it can get a bit tedious when you're fighting for just that one last territory. But overall, Sola Fide presents a solid gaming experience. This game retails for about $40 US, and if you're craving a genuine two-player game that you can sink your historical teeth into, Sola Fide is one to get today. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Thank you for listening to the 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games, or join our BGG Guild, number 2810. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or follow all the links on 5bygames.com. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at insidevoicesnetwork.com.